The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the book The Future of Smart, and your host. This year's Grantmakers for Education conference engaged the most diverse group of participants ever. One of the many reasons I appreciated this was that we had an opportunity to hear from powerful voices that kept reminding us of the need to elevate, center, and support not only the voices, but the work of those who've been historically marginalized in our country. We ended the conference with two great conversations that focused on the theme of igniting hope. Today's episode is taken straight from our second live plenary panel in Austin, Texas, on October 22nd, 2022. Throughout this season of The Future of Smart, we've heard from leaders and practitioners who approach education with a view of purpose, human potential, and community that are holistic and indigenous in nature. Holistic refers to a way of being that centers the wholeness of being and being human. In this podcast, we use the term indigenous to refer to ways of experiencing human life that are organized around intuitive, local values, rather than values imposed from the outside. In episode three, Josie Green, Jonathan Santos Silva, and I discussed neo-indigeneity, the idea that there are commonalities between indigenous American peoples and other populations that felt silenced by the Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture that has dominated America's discourse and systems. These groups recognize a tension between their traditional ways of being and the larger culture that they are forced to navigate. In today's episode, we explore these themes through the lived experience and work of four Black educators. Elizabeth Thompson is president of the Cleveland Avenue Foundation for Education Group and founder of the 1954 Project. She's deeply engaged in the nonprofit and philanthropic community in leadership development and education. She's joined by three luminaries of the 1954 Network. Jamile Cannon is founder and executive director of The Block, a sports-based education nonprofit that uses the sport of boxing to provide academic and social resources to Chicago's youth. Sharif Elmeki is CEO of the Center for Black Educator Development, working to help create a national pipeline to attract, develop, support, and empower Black teachers to help Black children liberate themselves, their families, and ultimately society. Samra Makuria Grillo is CEO and co-founder of Formation Ventures, a nonprofit dedicated to accelerating emerging Black entrepreneurs through educational and new venture support programs. The work of the 1954 Project is inspired by the memory of the thousands of Black educators who were driven out of the classroom in the wake of the Supreme Court's landmark 1954 decision in Brown versus Board of Education. While the dominant narrative around Brown is that it supported the education of Black children by ending separate but equal, 
What is less recognized is that thousands of Black educators were subsequently fired by white school officials, driven out of the classroom and the profession. The Black students they served lost access to teachers who knew Black communities and Black culture. More importantly, they lost access to educators whose work reflected a foundational belief in Black students' inherent worth and dignity. Instead, these students encountered a workforce of white educators who, intentionally or not, approached the education of Black and brown children through a deficit lens. Like the system as a whole, they'd been taught to privilege notions of capability and intelligence that centered white dominant values and therefore found children of color lacking. Today's conversation highlights some of the ways in which our education system has never fully recovered from this loss of Black intellectual and social capital. As our panelists all note, the work of Black education leaders continues to be underfunded, especially by the philanthropic sector. Philanthropic organizations are still run predominantly by white leaders, and research shows that three-quarters of white people have entirely white social networks, making it challenging for Black leaders to gain access. They reference research demonstrating that a minority of philanthropic dollars go to organizations led by people of color. Liz, Jamile, Samra, and Sharif remind us that we have the leaders and leadership we need to build an education system that works for all students, reflecting what we know about healthy human development, learning, and the value of human diversity. To make a more human-centered system a reality, we must challenge ourselves to find, support, and elevate the work of Black leaders and their allies more intentionally, to value the wisdom of communities that have a history of educating their children in ways we now know will benefit all young people. Hey, good people. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So we're talking about proximity this morning. I would love for each of you all to talk to us about an example of where a lived experience you had had such a positive impact on the work that you do. I wouldn't be doing this work had it been, not been for my lived experience. I uh, distinctly remember uh, being a young person and moving from one school that was really well resourced uh, to a school that was in a poor neighborhood. And I remember being held to such a high standard at this previous school. I'm in second grade and the spelling words I, I, that I remember most distinctly were phenomenal and unique. Like I'm seven years old and I'm spelling phenomenal and unique. My uncle can't spell these words. I'm, I'm the man. I got it. And we moved to this school that was surrounded by other poor neighborhoods. And I walk in in the middle of the school year. And on the first day, my first day at this new school, kids are sitting down on the carpet. The teacher's at the east, so they're in a spelling lesson. I'm like, it's my time. Let's go. And I hear the teacher sounding out the words together and because and thinking, this is different. I, this is what I came from. I look at the room and there are a lot more black and brown kids in this room. And they brought me the paper we're supposed to write on, and it was the training paper with the dotted lines that go down the middle. And I just thought, they think we're stupid. And I cried on my first day at this new school because I didn't understand what was happening, but I knew that it was unfair, and I knew it was going to keep happening. And it, it brought up a lot of anger in me. And I took it out. I, I was fighting a lot. I was suspended from school. I was arrested by, by the time I was a preteen. I had court-ordered anger management. None of those things changed my life. But having a coach who really believed in me and loved me and having my mother graduate college, those two things together, uh, 
put me on a completely different path to the point where I realized that that was the impact that I wanted to make on other people as well. Uh, for these kids who are looking for a fight, for these kids who have that anger in them and have a real reason to be mad, uh, I needed to find a way to harness that energy just like my, my energy was harnessed and help them fight for success and, and push to their full potential in their lives. And you do that at the block. Do that, do that at the block. We, we look for kids who want to fight uh, by using the sport of boxing to bring them in so that we can empower them with academic resources, opportunities. You come to me, you want to fight. Uh, I'm taking you on a college trip. We're, we're, we're getting some math tutoring. Uh, we're learning computer science and, and robotics. Uh, we, we want to not tell you to change who you are before you engage with us. We want to embrace you uh, so that we can help you to your full potential. Every kid who comes to our program graduates high school, gets accepted into college. That's been since 2016. Appreciate you, sir, and the work you do. Uh, thank Samra? You. Uh, so we work with black young people to accelerate their entrepreneurial journeys. And uh, it really comes from, for me, I was, I was a kid with a lot of ideas. And I thought to myself, I looked around and I said, what am I going to do with these ideas? And, and I didn't see people like me starting companies, starting businesses, starting nonprofits. It wasn't until I was on the founding team at Pahara and I had a chance to see how Pahara Fellows were leveraging their relationships with their co-fellows to be able to go build the ideas that they had, that I said, oh, this is, people are using these networks to figure out how to do things. Okay. Um, and for me, seeing people like Ami Eubanks-Davis, who I know is one of one of the 1954 one of our luminaries, luminaries. Yes. Um, and Mache Ashton, they came into this program and through the support that they felt there, they were able to go launch their visions for what needed to happen in the world. Um, and it taught me about how networks and relationships are so critical um, and, and gave me the confidence to say, oh, okay, maybe I can go do this too. Um, so that's, that's working. We're glad you did, so. Thank you. Sharif? Yeah, I, I mean, I think at the Center for Black Educated Development and we're looking to rebuild the Black Teacher Pipeline, I can't help but to think of the arc of my lived experiences as well as those, uh, you know, my, my teammates and colleagues in the organization. Starting from my childhood experience in a, a pre-K to sixth grade school that many people in this room would look at as deficient because it was segregated we looked at it as a heavenly experience um, at Nitha Musasa. Um, moving on to being a 20-year-old college graduate, being shot by a 19-year-old seventh grade dropout. Hmm. And then transitioning and being recruited to teach by a veteran black male educator in the school district of Philadelphia, Dr. Martin Ryder, and being taught how to teach by Yvonne Savior, you know, one of the few black women um, who was awarded Pennsylvania's Teacher of the Year. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at this culmination of black teacher pipeline and what led me through, what, what challenged me uh, when, when Derek saw, you know, because of his illiteracy, his school experience, his rage was different than my rage. Mm -hmm. My rage was directed toward a system that was failing so many uh, students that looked like me and how to address it. His rage 
was less disciplined, less focused, and just outward towards everybody, including himself. So for me, that collective lived experiences of not just me, but my colleagues is what drives us and helps and informs what we're trying to do today and how we connect with the youth who we're saying have to solve the issues of tomorrow. Sharif, you mentioned something at the table this morning. You talked about how teachers in the past, black teachers in particular, have been uh, so well-versed in so many things that we're studying today. The social-emotional learning and all of the tips and tricks that we have done years and years of research on, that black teachers have been doing this for generations. And I just think about the 38,000 teachers that we lost as a result of Brown versus Board of Education. What would our schools look like today had we not lost them? That's a rhetorical question. If we have time, I'm coming back to you for that as an actual question. Um, I want you all to now, as we think about uh, leveraging those lived experiences, there's another part of that, and that is the social capital that we have as a result. A lot of time, the social capital that we gain through our lived experience is beneficial for the work that we do, but not necessarily able to be leveraged in order to advance it in terms of raising money or in terms of making connections. Talk to us about the importance of social capital in achieving your vision. And Samra, I'll start with you. Uh, so, I mean, for an entrepreneur, social capital is everything. I mean, whether it is the people that you go to for support, uh, the money that you raise, the networks that you have, that is the foundation. And that's why we see entrepreneurial hubs around the country, around the world. It's because those networks are what make it possible for people to start new things. Um, and, you know, I think about my, my own experience. I'm not on the stage without a strong network of people. Sharonda Bassier from Edlock, Celine Coggins, Christina Heights is a Pahara fellow. She's our fiscal sponsor and a huge partner of ours. Like there's just, it, it's everywhere. It's a web that I see everywhere. And so when we think about what that means for the work that we do with young people, social capital is embedded throughout how we think about um, accelerating entrepreneurial journeys. We work with young people and provide them with near peer mentorship, which is one of the most effective ways of developing social capital for young mm -hmm. people. Uh, we talk to them about what it means to, uh, we, we show them what it means to affirm their identities and think about who are the people that they can connect with to actually start to understand, deepen their understanding of the problem that they want to solve. So it's everywhere, it's everywhere. Um, throughout our work. Sheree? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, social capital is such, such an interesting, uh, you know, kind of framework to think about, and it's so important. Um, my first 26 years as a professional was all inside of a school. And so that's one example of social capital, but guess what? They just as broke as I am, right? And so, like, that's, that's very different. And I would say on the flip side of that, being able to uh, have the principal ambassadorship, principal ambassador fellowship at the U.S. Department of Ed during a time when Jim Shelton, Arnie Duncan, John King, Kalila Harris, David John, like all of these people were there. And I had a capstone project that was about this idea that was formulated, like how do you support black men in education? Yeah. Well, I, I can talk to Jim Shelton. I can talk to Tara Mariani. I can talk to Arnie, uh, Arnie Duncan, John King. Like I can talk to these folks in that space to have really help refine and sharpen this. And I had no idea this was 20, 2011. 
Oh, wow. And so a decade later, it's really coming to fruition, but the social capital and was really about refining, pushing, challenging, but also being able to see at a macro level, oh, this isn't just a Philadelphia issue. This spans from Philly to Pasadena, right? Yeah. So this is a, a particularly unique challenge and that social capital allowed me to, to think and ideate and really develop, okay, here's what we believe can support rebuilding a black teacher pipeline. Thanks, Sharif Jamile. I, I, I want to put it pretty frankly. I, I, I struggled in this aspect of social capital because I had this program that we were working with where kids were walking from all over the west side of Chicago to be a part of it. We were having magnificent academic results. Kids in the program were ending the school year with an average GPA of a 3.2. We, it was, and they wanted to be there. And I could not get funding until I met a rich white man. And, and once that happened, I, he then opened up his broader network and I was talking to executive directors of foundations and, and other wealthy people who could then fund this organization. But I, I, I couldn't get funding based on the strength of the program alone, based on the, uh, the, the recommendation of the young people who were within this program and the demand that came from within their, within their community. That funding got to come from outside of the community by attracting the attention of people who were completely unrelated to the work that we were doing. Um, so the, the idea of proximity uh, and and being close to the work that I am doing is is at sometimes at odds with the idea of getting our getting our work funded. And the connector for that is being able to build your social capital, Absolutely. so that now this gentleman that is funding your work is closer, has more proximity to the work himself than he did before. One of the things that we're finding through our work at the 1954 project is while we are thrilled to be able to write a million dollar check to each of five luminaries that we select each year. Sometimes it is as important for us to open up our Rolodex, as I realize that's dating me, open up our <laughs> iPhones and all of that and saying, I know this person, therefore now you know this person. Sometimes that can be a harder thing for people to do than writing the check. And so... You know, I ask people to reflect all the time. How are you supporting your grantees beyond the check? How are you putting your own social capital on the line in order to help them build theirs? So back to the summer of 2020, um, a lot of things changed for a lot of people all over the world. What changed for your work as a result of the racial rec reckoning? during that summer. Sharif, I'll start with you. Uh, listen, we had just started in 2019. So the first thing I was like, why the heck did I leave my school? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I loved my school. I was not one of those principals that was ready to leave. I only left because I was restless. Like, what would it take to do this instead of doing it nights and weekends? So to, to see that, and I, and I wanna tell you, like I usually in person, like, yo, I don't blink no matter what. In 2020, I blinked and blinked hard. Like, you know, do we shut down? Do I say, hey, can I come back to my school and, you know, be the assistant principal? They had already hired him or like whatever. Um, <laughs> but I think it also reinforced for me listening to our youth. Because we had already did one year and it was in person. And we reached out to the youth like, hey, we're thinking about not doing it. Um, you know, obviously, you know, couldn't be in person and so on and so forth. They're like, wait, why can't we do it virtual? I was like, everywhere I'm hearing, y'all hate virtual learning. You're like, you're shutting the computer, you're not turning it on, you're not. They're like, oh, that's school. 
we'll do freedom schools. And it, it just really repositioned my orientation of like, hey, like, you know, what? and I'm always like, listen to the youth, listen to the youth. And at that time, I initially I balked and like, I don't know. I'm so glad we did it. Mm. We went from this small, you know, Philadelphia base to a national organization with a national footprint with uh, employees living all over the country. And but it also it allowed us to have access to youth who said, all of our school experience should mirror what we're experiencing this summer. And so to have that feedback from parents, from students, from my own, my own daughters who participated, and said, oh yes, this is different. This is a unique experience. And I almost missed the opportunity to experience that, to go from Philadelphia to having 15 states represented in our black teacher apprentices, as well as the first, second, and third graders who were being taught by these high school and college kids. I almost missed it because I was just wringing my hand and singing sad songs um, mm -hmm. instead of yeah. listening to uh, to the youth. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm glad they challenged me on it. I don't know, Sharif. Sounds like to me you listen to those most proximate to the issues. Listen, they didn't create these problems, <laughs> but they definitely have solutions to the problems. Yeah. Just saying, Jemiah. I I, I want to follow on that uh, because you know there's this initial sense of fear with everything that's going on at the time during the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd. And I thought about packing it in for a while. And I was walking down the street and a woman who lives down the street from our facility says, Hey, uh, our store got looted. My son's laid off. I don't know what we're going to do. How am I going to get food? And we started a food pantry that weekend. We passed out 6,000 pounds of fresh produce to the community. Uh, the kids were telling us that uh, they were not enjoying their time in virtual learning uh, and uh, they didn't like doing it at home. They needed some support. So we built out a virtual learning lab within within our space. Uh, so listening to the community was important to us as an organization. And, and I started hearing more from foundations about how they wanted to listen to community more. Uh, the the uh, commitments that they were making to the black community specifically. Um, so I, I never talked to more foundations in my in my life. And I gave a lot of pointed feedback about what could change uh, within their systems. But I didn't see those changes actually come through in terms of personnel or criteria or uh, any substantive change to the systems that they were using to evaluate and choose the programs that they funded. Um, so ultimately what happened was a lot of black labor was used to, to support uh, the thinking processes of the foundations. Uh, but we need more uh, effort to uh, put forth on that foundation side to, to change the, the systems that are creating the results that they're coming up with right now. Thank you, Jamal. Summer, what changed for you? Uh, so in the summer of 2020, uh, I had just had a, I had a one-year-old, so I was sort of coming off of a um, second child and was trying to figure out, I had been looking at the idea that became Formation Ventures for about a year, but I had been sort of sitting on my hands a little bit and I wasn't sure exactly how I wanted to do it. And I just looked at what was going on and I said, I can't. I can't not do this right now. I have to do this and I have to do it fast because if we don't change the dynamics of wealth in this country, entrepreneurship is one is the biggest driver of wealth yep. um, in this country, then we will never change the dynamics of power and this will continue to happen again and again and again. And I, I can't look my two little boys in the face and say, I do this now, so. We saw a video of Samra's two adorable <laughs> little guys this morning uh, wishing her well. 
um, as she said on this panel today, it was the most adorable thing you've ever seen. Um, yeah, it was, it was adorable. Um, one of the things that I said at the top of my comments was I was really excited to be at this conference because I was getting such tangible ideas and tools to take back with me in order to improve my practice uh, in philanthropy. So I'm gonna ask each of you, what is one step for the members in our audience to take as they leave today? But I'm gonna ask you to reflect on it in two different buckets. Professionally, what's one step you'd like for them to take? And personally, what might you recommend they do to improve their practice? Jamile, let's start with you. I think it's important that we look critically, professionally, we look critically at the points at which our systems allow for discretion and what the impact of that discretion is, who is harmed by the discretion, who's helped by it. I think a good way to think about this, uh, I think everybody here has been harmed by a system since they got to this conference. That's the elevator. Uh, <laughs> you, you walk into every, every, the same conversation. Every time you go up on the elevator, the same conversations happen. And like, there's, there's a, the key thing, and I can't get this to work. So, actually, what? But the thing about that is that impacts me differently than it impacts you in a way that you may not be thinking about. Because what happens at this point is it empowers one person to decide who goes up without their key. There's one person. So every time I step into one of these situations for the first time as a black man, I'm thinking like. Is this about to be a viral video? <laughs> like, is somebody going to refuse to let me go up because of the way that I look, the way that I present myself here today? So it empowers one person in that, in, in that situation. So we have a system that's meant for our safety that, one, isn't supporting our safety because it's not working correctly, and two, creates these moments of discretion that are going to impact people disproportionately. And every system, this isn't my quote, but every system is perfectly designed for the results that it gets. So when we, when that viral video happens, you know, we'll point a finger at that individual and we'll say, this person is bad, but the whole time the system was bad to begin with. So, and if they ask me that question, they ask me about my stay, I'm gonna give that feedback and they're not gonna listen. It's not gonna happen. I'm, I'm gonna give that direct feedback and nothing's gonna change from it. Uh, so, the piece of advice that I have for people is to evaluate the discretionary points within the systems that we have make the changes to those systems that are necessary to one, either eliminate that discretion or to, to benefit the people who are being harmed by the discretion. Make the changes to the personnel that are gonna be necessary in order to accomplish those things. Uh, and, and to do so with the people who are harmed most in mind. Summer. Uh, I was reflecting, listening to the, the earlier part of this panel, just around how much I think we are all aligned on the potential of young people. And so I would just say, this: I have the same advice professionally and personally, really truly deeply believe in the genius of young people and young black people in particular. If you give them the tools to envision and build the future they want to see, they will lead us. Like, I am convinced that they have the answers. Yep. We just need to give them the space and the tools to be able to build it. And so think about what that means for your day to day. Are you listening to the voices of young black people, truly listening? 
Are you giving them the space to share what they want, what they believe, what their vision is for their future, for all of our futures? Because, I mean, let's be real, like we don't know how to solve these problems, right? So why aren't we going to the young people? And I mean, young people are incredible. They are. They are incredible. So I just, I, I exhort us all to like, let go of the, I've been doing this work for a long time and I'm old and I know the things like just really listen and let their genius lead us to the solutions that we desperately need. We were having a conversation at the table this morning about how different phrases mean different things to different people. And when we talk about listening and believing in the genius of young people, I'm so old, I didn't know half of what y'all were talking about this morning. <laughs> so trust me, I'm listening to them. I'm listening to y'all and y'all are listening to them. Sharif, what would you, what would you say to our audience? Yeah, I, I would say, and I think it weaves both personal and professionally, um, and it also touches on what you spoke about earlier. Um, this idea like, I, I wish everyone would be a student. I just wish everyone would be a student. I think so many of the things that I see people, foundations, organizations, what they're chasing, what they claim they want, it's already captured in the black teaching traditions for generations. The black pedagogical framework, the black historical lens, like it's captured and you're running around like, we need social emotional learning, we need relationships, we need, you know, all of these things that Black teachers had already been doing that, but they were ignored. They were, you know, marginalized. They, Dr. Jarvis Givens in his book, Fugitive Pedagogy, if you haven't read it, you need to read it. He talks about like how they had to hide real instruction to do fake instruction for, you know, white, a white system, right? And when I think about not only are educators today, professors, the ecosystem, not only are they still using white and Eurocentric educational theories, behavior theories, any educator who's like, I went through a traditional program will tell you, oh yeah, what are you steeped in? What's your, what's your ideological genealogy, your intellectual genealogy? Where do you trace it? Dewey, Horace Mann, B.F. Skinner, Piaget, folks who couldn't even imagine black, brown, indigenous people in these schools. But that feeds the narrative, the mindset, the framing, the orientation, the philosophy of how, and then it, people are steeped in that and then sent to teach black and brown indigenous folks. That makes no sense. But I would also I would posit that that's not just educators, that's yeah. the ecosystem. Yeah. And if people understood why were nonprofits created originally? Like what's 1954 project, what are they drawing from? When these black revolutionary folks were in living rooms talking about this is how we're gonna channel our money. Yeah. This is how we're going to fund and, and undermine a system of oppression. This was done before people could get college degrees in nonprofit work. They were in the streets doing that. And I'm not saying that, you know, none of the work can happen in fancy hotels and we don't have to go into basements and church basements and in the woods. I'm not saying we have to return to that. Meet me in the woods, Sharif. Besides the, besides the elevator, this joint is pretty dope. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying that, but let's not forget the, the orientation that the people who were trying to change things had. I think that part was lost and I would just love for people to really seep in what, where did nonprofits start and why? The creation of 500 black schools in the midst 
of places that were trying to burn them down, right? Like that, that was the nonprofit work. What was the black teaching tradition that may have even been strained during the Middle Passage, but not broken? Strained during Reconstruction, but not broken. Strained during Jim Crow Reconstruction, shutting down schools, but not broken. And I think we can learn the same thing as those in nonprofits, those in foundations. What can we actually be a student of and apply it to today? If you need to know what the 1954 project is about, I think you just heard. <laughs> um, last question. My good friend, the timekeeper, has told me so. <laughs> if I were to give you a magic wand and you could go into these organizations and change one thing that would make it easier for you as black leaders trying to have the impact you're trying to have, what would it be? Summer? Uh, so as I started working on uh, what became Formation Ventures, I was talking to a lot of VC investors because I was like, you know, entrepreneurship, I'm gonna go talk to these people who invest in entrepreneurs. And over and over again, they told me that the type of work I was trying to do with the type of young people that I wanted to serve didn't fit their pattern recognition. And I was like, what do you mean by pattern recognition? And they said, well, you know, we have a rubric that we use because we, you know, have to make these smart decisions. We see all these different, you know, hundreds of proposals. So we look for patterns and we invest based on the patterns that we've seen be successful. And I'm like, well, but then you look at the statistics, you know, 1.2% of VC funding is going to black folks and 4% of philanthropic funds, depending on, you know, what source you're using. I was like, if, if that's the pattern that you're using, then it's nothing is ever gonna change. And so I guess my magic wand would be, how, how can we actually shift what that pattern is based on? What are the signals that we're looking for? And how do you actually interrogate, am I using signals that are disrupting the system? Or am I using signals that are reinforcing it? And if I could wave that magic wand, I would say, let's disrupt that system and change the pattern so that it's based on proximity. It's based on the insights that people who have deep lived experience with the people that they are, the communities that they are working with, that those insights are valued and that you're looking for a vision that isn't gonna look like the same pattern but could actually help us to transcend. Thank you, Sama. I, I, I think, a lot of us understand the listen call, the call to listen. I think it needs to go from listening to doing and by start that, starting that doing internally. Uh, start by uh, looking at the internal systems that we have that are stopping us from getting the results that we want to get. Uh, it's, uh, we saw a lot of organizations within philanthropy come out with a commitment to uh, black leadership, a commitment to the black community. Uh, and there are so many unmet pledges in that realm that it doesn't even make sense for the commitment to have been made to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's because we are taking, we think it's a matter of will. We think it's a matter of like, if we just want to do better, we'll end up doing better. But really it's a matter of systems and personnel and criteria. Uh, so we need to take a look at the systems that we have in place. What are, what are we looking for in organizations? What is the criteria? Which, what, what parts of this criteria 
actually make a difference for the impact that we're really trying to make? Which parts of these, this criteria is just familiar to us mm -hmm. and, and fits the pattern that we're looking for? Uh, it, I think it's going to be incredibly important to not send the same people out with the same criteria and the same set of rules and expect a different result. So really take a look at ourselves internally first before going out back into the world. Thank you, Jemaya. Sharif? Yeah, I, I would say what I, what I hope is that people will listen to, learn from, and give to organizations like Edlock. Organizations like 1954 Project. What I'm nervous about is that you may have heard Liz talk about like we were welcome with house music and that some of y'all are gonna try to pull that off. Don't do that. <laughs> like, like, you know, cause if I show up here, I'm gonna be a little suspicious of you and like what you're doing or what you're trying to do. But when we talk about proximity, the community, but also the people who have a unfiltered conversation about the work, the impact, our lived experiences, right? And so, you know, we talk about like, it's not just our organizations, but also like the organizations that are supporting us directly and through the lived experiences. So what does it mean for 1954 Project to be fully funded and be able to support? It doesn't mean that you're like, all right, now we're not supporting the smaller nonprofits, but like that you have a giving strategy that directly impacts them as well as us and looking at, at that as part of the collective, you know? Um, and so thinking about that. I hope that you really think about transformational gifts. That as you've been here uh, this week, that you're actually thinking about who are we gonna support and fund and how does this influence what our plan is? Because I, I swear, as a, you know, I was a principal for 16 years, teacher for, for uh, 10 did a whole lot of changing and, and tweak. I've never seen any group of people besides funders revisit their strategic giving plans. I'm like, y'all change every time the wind, but oh, we gotta go back and change. Oh no, we're not doing it now. I'm like, it's pretty, I'm, as, a te as an educator, I'm just like, what are y'all doing? Like, you know, so, so I would say like, really think about that. Like, how do you create this long-term support impact and understand everything's not microwavable. We look at the black teacher pipeline as 12 years long. So if you show up like, what are you doing in six months? Oh, how many teachers are you gonna produce? The teacher that we're producing is in the 10th grade in high school. And we're gonna support them all the way through until they matriculate through college and in their first four years of teaching. And so having that long-term understanding, but if you only try to give and lead through Excel and PowerPoints and, and from a distance, you're not gonna understand why that 10th grader wants to lead a classroom. What the intergenerational coaching and mentoring and teaching support means to them as a 10th grader teaching a first grader and being mentored by a college student and our staff. You're not gonna get that if you're not in uh, you know, proximity. And so I, I would say, you know, be a student, learn, and think transformational and long-term not the instantaneous, constantly changing everything. That's not how deep change works. So you all, I'm going to uh, close us out today with giving recognition to an organization I hadn't heard of, but Celine and company had the presence of mind to invite the typewriter rodeo folks. And if you didn't experience them, I'm gonna suggest you do. Uh, because I asked them, I walked up to their booth and they said, 
give us a topic. And I said, the black leaders that I'm trying to support. And a few minutes later, this is what came out. This is a tribute to the black leaders that we support. It's called, You Are Our Future. They see you seeing them. And this seeing is how we all see what the future needs to be. Our vision of your vision is the vision of the world we envision for all. Your hope of this now is the hope of our new now. The hope we hold, the hope you bring, this brilliant vision we want to see for all. From you, our great hope imbued. And so with that, I would ask that you thank the panelists today. Thanks for listening. The Future Smart Podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com. <laughs>